The reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. Paul says, But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Well, with uh, both of our ministers uh, absent this morning, I should probably thank you all for turning out, uh, possibly wondering as you did so if it was a wise decision. Uh, I will recall the salutary tale recounted some years ago by a Dr. Alexander Finlay, a notable New Testament scholar and Methodist preacher. It seems that he was attending an unfamiliar church one Sunday morning, having been invited as their visiting preacher, and as he arrived, he kindly helped an elderly lady up the church steps and into the church lobby. As the lady was about to walk to her accustomed seat, she turned to her kind helper and asked if he knew who would be preaching that morning. Alexander Finlay came the reply. In that kiss, said the elderly lady, would you mind helping me down the steps again? And it seems that Alexander Finlay duly obliged. We're not given any further information on that brief encounter, at least none of which I'm aware, but it does serve to illustrate that even the best efforts of the great and the good are not always universally appreciated. Now, there are certain passages of Scripture that stand out, that linger in the memory, and the verses 
from Romans 3, particularly verses 23 and 24, on which we're focusing this morning, surely contain some of the most profound thoughts expressed in the Bible. Why, you may ask? Because in this passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul is homing in on Christian basics, the real bedrock of our faith about which he was so passionate and which we can forget all too easily. What do we know of this letter? Well, it's believed that it was written by Paul to the Christians at Rome in February AD 58, whilst he was staying at the home of a prominent Christian, Gaius. From the book of Acts, we know that Paul was helped in his task by an amanuensis or scribe named Tertius, and that the completed letter was taken to Rome by a wealthy widow, Phoebe, who was going to Rome on private business. Many regard Romans as Paul's finest letter and an intellectual and theological masterpiece. Calvin stated that it opened the door to all the treasures in Scripture. Coleridge considered it the most profound work ever written. Luther pronounced it to be the chief book of the New Testament, and it has to be said that generations of Bible scholars and students have struggled at times to make sense of everything that Paul is saying. The key theme of Romans is justification, as Paul seeks to answer the question posed by Job many centuries previously. How should man be just before God? And the basis of Paul's answer to Job's question lies in verses 16 and 17 of the first chapter, where he writes this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is a righteousness from God. In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, the Bible explains the death of Jesus in several ways, and in this morning's passage, we look particularly at the overriding theme of justification. Justification is a legal term. It comes from the law courts. The opposite of justification is condemnation. So justification speaks of the verdict that a judge makes at the end of a trial. It's a declaration that someone is just, that they're in the right, that they are righteous and innocent and acquitted of the charges brought against them. We need to realize that righteous does not mean virtuous, but rather clear, right, acquitted. Paul makes this very clear in Romans 3 verse 23 when he writes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then in the very next verse, verse 24, Paul reminds us that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Paul is making the point, and it's a crucial point, that when God looks at a Christian man or woman, he says of them 
that because of what God has done, they are in the clear. If you and I have accepted God's offer of free salvation, then God will find nothing in us to condemn us. We are acquitted. There's a wonderful Pigeon English translation of one of the verses that speaks of justification. And the translation runs like this. God, he say, I'm all right. So what's happening here is that the Christian is being given in advance the verdict of God's final judgment on his or her life. The Christian is in the clear, acquitted, in the right, with nothing to condemn. A little further on in Romans, Romans 8 verse 33, we see that future element of justification, when, which is the key point that Paul is making. When Paul writes this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justified. It's as if Paul is pressing the fast forward button on the video of God's timeline. The picture is of God's final courtroom. God is the judge. Satan is the prosecuting counsel. And you and I are in the dock with Satan reeling off the lists of the deeds of our lives when we've offended, when we've broken God's law. We've rebelled against God, he gloats. We fail to keep God's standards. We've repeatedly pushed God's son Jesus to the edge of our lives. The list is endless. And we hear Satan, our accuser, reel off fault after fault, failure after failure, as we stand there helpless. The prosecution case is flawless. There appears to be no way out. Satan is triumphant. He reminds the judge that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And do you know what? God leans forward at the end of the trial and says to Satan, Who can bring any charge against one of my people? Those who have committed their lives to Christ are justified, acquitted, and in the clear with me. God, he say, I'm all right. We need to be clear that justification is not just another word for forgiveness. John Stott makes this very clear in his excellent book, The Cross of Christ, when he says this, forgiveness and justification are complementary, not identical. Forgiveness remits or cancels our debts and cancels our liability to punishment. Justification, on the other hand, bestows on us a righteous standing before God, which means that when God looks at you or me this morning, if we trust in Jesus Christ, he sees us as in the clear, as right. I think the last verse of that Charles Wesley hymn that we sang a few minutes ago puts it brilliantly. No condemnation now I dread, no fear of future judgment. Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. So when God looks at the committed Christian, he sees the perfect life of Christ, 
clothed in righteousness divine. Justification means that I need never, ever fear God's judgment again. Justification is the declaration today of God's final verdict. Justification means that I am absolutely assured of my eternal future with God, just like the father of the prodigal son. And if we face up to the truth, we know that deep down we're all prodigal sons and daughters. God will rush to embrace every penitent sinner who turns to him and will not reject or turn us away. Having introduced the theme of justification, we should now move on to the second point, because some here this morning may well be asking, how then is a person justified? Let me read verses 23 and 24 again, and you'll see the problem. How can God say of a person in verse 23 what he says in verse 24? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. How can God possibly say of the person described in verse 23 that he's in the clear, that she's acquitted? For all, every single one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as we're reminded later on in Romans, the wages of sin is death. So is this some kind of weird, divine, legal fiction? What's going on? The founding fathers of the Reformation back in the 16th century highlighted three great truths that they felt had been ignored by the corrupt church of that time and upon which our salvation depends. They emphasized what the Bible clearly teaches, namely that it is by grace alone, in Christ alone, and through faith alone that we are accepted by God. Those are the big issues that many people during the time of the Reformation literally went to the stake for. And we need to see how it is that God's seemingly contradictory statements in Romans 3 make sense. First of all, how did it happen? By grace alone. And you can see the answer in verse 24 of Romans 3, where we read that we are justified by God's grace as a gift. Grace means undeserved. And in this case, an undeserved gift. And gift means gift, gratis, free. The reformers put in the word alone, because although the word doesn't appear in the actual verse, it's very much there in the context. Just turn back to verse 20 of Romans 3, and you'll see why. Therefore, writes Paul, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Many years ago, uh, an Oxford, uh, Oxford University was playing host to what might best be described as a religious convention, an event attended by many of the most eminent scholars from the world's great religions. But one overriding question had them nonplussed and searching for an answer, namely, 
What particular quality distinguished Christianity from all the other world religions? Into this august gathering strolled the eminent Oxford professor and author C.S. Lewis, and he was asked if he could come up with an answer. That's an easy one, he said to their doubtless amazement. It's grace, pure and simply grace. Christianity alone offers the undeserved favour of God. In his letter to the Romans, Paul's appealing to probably the most religious nation there's ever been, the Jewish nation. And he's been making the point that religious good works, however hard we try, will never make us right with God. Trying to keep the Ten Commandments doesn't make me right with God. Circumcision doesn't make the Jewish person right with God. Being born a Jew doesn't make the Jewish person right with God. Why? Because through God's law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, the more I look at God's Ten Commandments, the more I try to keep those laws, the more I realize how perfect God's standards are, and the more I come to that realization, the more I realize that I haven't got a hope of reaching them, that I stand guilty as charged. As we look at the law, at God's Ten Commandments, we see ourselves with all our imperfections, much like looking in the bathroom mirror. And as through the law comes knowledge of sin, and as we look at God's perfect standards, we realize, if we're honest with ourselves, that we simply cannot keep them. And once we fail to keep God's law, it doesn't matter how much money we may give to charity, how many times we attend church or come to communion, or how many good deeds we may perform. If we are guilty, we're guilty. The law demands that our sins be punished, and we therefore stand in the dock unable to help ourselves. Thinking that we can get ourselves off the hook by what we do is rather like a convicted murderer turning to the judge and saying, All right, if I write you a check, Your Honour. Luther spoke of grace... as being something given to heal the spiritually sick and not something to decorate spiritual heroes. In other words, it's no use deluding ourselves that we're better than many others, that we live pretty decent and upright lives. Because the Bible tells us very clearly that all of us have sinned. We've all broken God's laws. Every single one of us needs to seek the forgiveness of God. So justification comes by God's gift alone. We've all sinned. We cannot earn this gift, but we're condemned without it. That, of course, still leaves us asking the question, how? By grace alone doesn't entirely answer the question. For if it's free, then isn't this some kind of legal fiction? Is God just playing let's pretend? That's often what Christians are accused of, isn't it? That God's got some kind of divine amnesia 
when it comes to rebellion against him, and he's forgotten all about it and swept it under the carpet. That brings us to our second point, in Christ alone, because it's the death of Jesus Christ that enables God to count us justified. Just look again at our key verse, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Paul is explaining that if I have seen my desperate need, repented of my sins and committed my life to Jesus, I become part of a new people who belong to God, whose sins have been paid for by God's Son, Jesus Christ. I have sinned, you have sinned, every member of the human race has sinned. And our sins are remembered, they deserve to be punished. But if I belong to Jesus and have turned to him and trust in what he's done for me at Calvary on my behalf, God will see me as being in Jesus with my sin dealt with and the perfect life of Jesus credited to my account. As Paul puts it even more clearly in his second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. I don't think that the idea of benefiting from the life or work of someone else is altogether unfamiliar in our culture, is it? If a national sporting hero scores the winning goal, hits a match-winning century, or wins an Olympics final, we naturally identify with that achievement, and his or her sporting triumph somehow becomes our success. Paul is here explaining that the act of one man, Jesus Christ, living a perfect life, dying a death on our behalf, enables us to be joined to him, to have his perfect life credited to our account, our undeserving account. It means that Jesus has paid for my sin, wiped my slate clean, and means that God will look at my life as big in Christ, which, of course, leaves us asking the final question, how does one get joined to Jesus? And the answer's there as well in our passage, isn't it? In verse 25 of Romans 3, we read that God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Notice that word faith. It's by faith alone and not by works that we get joined to Jesus. We can never earn our salvation. Paul doesn't say that I'm received by God because I've been baptized or confirmed, significant though such steps might be in the life of a Christian. Paul doesn't say that God will receive me because I belong to a particular denomination or because I might happen to be a well-liked and respected member of my community or because I happen to be a generous donor to charitable causes. No, 
Paul says that I am received by God only by faith, by simply trusting in what Jesus has done on my behalf. One ancient church leader once likened faith to a young swallow waiting in its nest with a wide open mouth, trusting that its parents would be coming to feed it. I've already mentioned Charles Wesley this morning, the writer of that wonderful hymn we sang a little earlier. His brother John became a Christian as he listened to a wayside preacher in Aldersgate in the city of London. Listen to what John Wesley had to say as his eyes were opened and he discovered for himself the great truth of God's love for him and his need to ask Jesus Christ into his life. About a quarter before nine, while the preacher was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I could trust in Christ, in Christ alone, for salvation. An assurance was given me that Christ had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. As we draw to a close, just ask yourself if you have that assurance. Just consider whether God has done that work in your life. The Bible makes it very plain that it's by grace alone in Christ alone, and through faith alone, that we are justified before God. To suggest, as some do, that we have to earn our salvation is not only false, but distances us from everything that God wants to give us freely in Christ Jesus. Please don't leave here this morning thinking that we have to earn the right to be in heaven. None of us ever could. Amen. Shall we just pray briefly? In Jesus and through faith in Jesus, we may draw near to God in freedom and with confidence. So we praise you, our Father God, that you have done all that is necessary for us to be counted right with you. We pray that you would help every single one of us here this morning to receive this glorious gift as we come to your Son, Jesus Christ. This we ask in his name. Amen.